as most of you undoubtedly will know. In a little while, the Olympics will start again. And last week, it was four years ago that the Olympics started in London. And of course, that has brought about some looking back. I guess there were some gatherings of athletes that had been competing in London. There were some reflections on how well it went and what is happening with the Olympic Village. And I think even the dress of the Queen, in which she supposedly jumped from an airplane with James Bond, is put on display. But there is one event about there was something to do at the time, caused a little bit of a hullabaloo that I haven't seen back yet. And that was about empty seats at the Olympics. And at the time, the journalists couldn't get enough of it. They interviewed disappointed sportsmen and women who performed for empty seats, which, of course, is not very encouraging or motivating. And they interviewed angry parents of these sports people who had wanted to see their son and daughter perform but never got a ticket. And they interviewed people who had come from afar and were told no seats. And it appeared that part of the Olympic officialdom had claimed seats were walking around importantly with their name badges and their identity cards around their necks, but then stayed in their hotel or they went shopping. And they never bothered to show up at the event. Maybe they would go later for the more interesting finals. And they never bothered to say that they weren't coming. Now, you may well think, what arrogant buffoons. You may think these people did not value what they had, showed no courtesy to the people who gave them the ticket, gave no thought to the athletes or to those who missed out. I would never do that. I would never do that. And what then... Do you think about your empty seat at church on Sunday or at the prayer meeting or at the Bible study group? Now, I'm not talking about absences for good reasons. You're ill or you're on duty or you have to do the babysitting and so on, but about cases where you could go and you didn't. What do you think about that? But then I hear you say, well, the Olympics are different. That is a unique event. These seats are expensive. They are a scarce commodity. But empty church seats, of those there are enough. You can always go there. No reservation required. Later. Later. Or maybe you think, hmm, another preacher with a wagging finger who wants bums on seats. But you know what? Very often I have other fish to fry. I don't know about you, but frequently I have more exciting things to do. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that you come to church to partic- or participate in church life just out of a sense of duty or habit or because your parents want you to or to earn brownie points with God because that all could be legalism. And if we want to live our life in Christian freedom, it needs to be lived not in legalism, where we try to earn part of our salvation, nor in libertinism, we go off and do what we like, but in love for God and his people. And that is also true here. But when you make your choice and you set your priorities, there are some things that need to be considered. Because you see, you do have your ticket, your invitation to the kingdom of God. This is it. And it was given to you this morning when you came in. And you have it at home. And if not, I'm sure the elders will be happy to give you a copy. And that invitation is a privilege, but it is also a responsibility that we have to face up to. Because, you know, unlike the Olympics, the seats in the kingdom of God are free. But they came at a terrible cost. And empty seats in church will there no doubt always be, but not always for each of us individually. And nothing bad happened, as far as I know, to this Olympic officialdom, but our choices will have consequences. And you do not have to take my word for it. Only to listen to the word of God himself. The words of the Lord Jesus here in our text, in these two parables, in these two stories. Because the question that the Lord poses here to us is, what do we do with our invitation, with our ticket given to us in the Bible? And we note three things. First, we cannot wait for another date. Secondly, we cannot wait for an upgrade. And in the third place, we can joyfully come now. So then, what do we do with the invitation that the Lord has given you? And we note in the first place, that our answer cannot wait for another date. That is the message of the parable of the ignored invitation. We read in the beginning a bit of the context. The Lord Jesus was invited at a meal by the Pharisees, but it wasn't hospitality. He was there to be reviewed and inspected. The mood, you can sense it, is one of confrontation. Because, you see, the Lord had been presenting himself as the one, the Messiah, sent by God. He was the Lord of the Sabbath, and he had come to heal. Symbolically from illnesses in his many miracles, but really from sin. But the Pharisees, they cannot accept this. And now, here at this meal, they are watching him whether he will break their Sabbath rules. And they placed before him a man with dropsy. 
And the Lord punishes them beforehand. He challenges them afterwards, but they remain silent. And then there is another parable about seeking places of honor at meals. And in verse 15, one of these Pharisees then responds to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It sounds like rather satisfied, like he fully expected to enter the kingdom of God and to have a nice place at that meal. But now the Lord Jesus cautions him and others and us. Because entering the kingdom of God requires loving and following Jesus when he calls. And if you go with me through the parable, then we see in verse 16 and 17 that this man had invited his guests earlier. That was the custom, so they wouldn't be taken by surprise. And indeed, the meal at the time, I guess no microwaves or steam ovens took a long time and a lot of work to prepare. But then it is ready. It's dinner time. And the message goes around, come now. And then in verse 18 and 20, to 20, all like one, unanimously, they started to make excuses for not coming. Everybody does it. Nobody does it. But as we shall see, there is no safety in the crowds. And then so many good-sounding excuses. The commentators argue about whether these reasons are serious. Some say, well, there are serious reasons. Others say, well, you probably try out your auction before you buy and you look at the field before you buy. But it doesn't really matter at the end of the day because these people, they thought that they were good excuses. Sorry, so sorry, so sorry. And the last one, no sorry. But the point, and the net result is, they did not come. They have their other priorities, their other important things to do, their other preferences, the cares of this world, the temptation of riches, the pleasures of life. And then in 21 and 23, all this is reported by the servant to his master. And the master is angry. They had all been invited earlier. The meal had been prepared. And the feast was now. Hurry. And what we then see happening is, is the kingdom of God does not wait. It comes at the appointed time. The feast will not wait, not even for the invited guests. And there would not be another date. Because others do come. The losers and the outcasts from the perspective of the Pharisees who were so comfortable with themselves but did not listen to the Lord Jesus calling. And the number the Bible tells us it will be full, 144,000, but just with others. First the simple, the sinful people in town who do not have the law from the Pharisees' perspective and then they go outside the town, even the uncircumcised foreigners, they all come. And then in verse 24, the master is speaking to the servant, or maybe the Lord Jesus, to all of us. They were invited, but they will not taste my dinner. The Pharisees, 
and everybody who does not heed the Lord Jesus' invitation, they are missing the banquet. The meal in heaven, the reclining man had referred to in verse 15. But the banquet is not missing them, because others will come, and they have excluded themselves. And that table in heaven is my table, says the Lord Jesus. He reveals himself as God, not just to these Pharisees, but also to us today. It is God issuing that invitation because his kingdom is coming and it is coming like the tide. It waits for no man. But you may say, well, what about responding to this invitation a little bit later? When I'm older, when I'm wiser, when I had a good time in my youth, feel more up to it, feel more devout, more given to reflection on the eternal, less busy with work, then I will fully participate. Well, of course, you can do that. But the risk is that in the meantime, faith slips through your fingers or it dies out like a fire that is not kindled. It is, to put it bluntly, playing Russian roulette with your eternal life. And in that game, you never know when the bullet comes, like in real life. And you may say, well, but this parable isn't really about a chair or a pew in church. That is a very narrow, legalistic interpretation of this parable. This parable is about heaven. And so it is. And can't I then have part in the kingdom of God through my own individual spirituality a faith outside this institution called the church with its tedious traditions and its tiresome people and all its failings? Well, I think a Christian hermit or a Christian soloist is a contradiction in terms. Because the Bible clearly does not talk about Jesus having a list of individual sheep living here, there, everywhere in splendid isolation. It talks about the flock, bringing them into the fold. The psalmist, Psalm 22, talks about it. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And the letter to the Hebrews tells us, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised, the one who gave you the invitation, is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Are you hearing this story today and having been given a Bible at the door, are you coming? Well, of course, you are here in this morning service today, but tonight, tomorrow, all the days of your life. And are you prioritizing your life around the Lord's call to serve him, to be part of his people, to join his flock, to live for his kingdom? And are you doing it now? So we heard then in the first place that the Lord asks in this parable as a question, what do you do with your invitation? And there was in the first place the warning that we cannot wait for another date. 
In the second parable, there is the second point that we can also not wait for an upgrade. Because that is the message of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Again, let us first look at the context. Chapter 16, the verses 14 to 18. The Lord Jesus is again here talking to the Pharisees. And they again have different priorities and they are not listening to or following Jesus. The Pharisees loved money. That was their priority. And Jesus says that that focus, that priority, it's an abomination. The law, Moses, the prophets, the writings, all these books that they so industriously cited pointed to the Messiah. And that Messiah's message, the Lord's preaching, pointed to the kingdom of God as the real priority. Many people, the text tells us, the ordinary people on whom they looked down, they pressed forward to get in, the despised sinners and the tax collectors, but they didn't. And the Pharisees saw themselves as the keeper of the keepers of the law, people busy leading a decent, exemplary, and good life. But Jesus tells them and us not to love money or self or such similar priority, but to understand that the law points to Jesus. They are to recognize and adore him as bringing the kingdom of God, and they are to honor that kingdom's values. That is to be their priority. That was the point of the law of Moses and the prophets. And then our parable starts. Verse 19, there was a rich man. A man similar to the others in the earlier parable, because as we will see, he also had gotten the message, the invitation. And we hear this man as wonderful clothes, purple, it was the imperial color. He probably had the best expensive designer stuff that you could have. And he has a life in luxury and leisure, a splendid house and sumptuous food every day. He simply had all that one, and so many people do, wish for. Now, our text does not suggest that being rich in itself is a problem, because the text positively refers to Abraham, who was also very rich. The Bible Bible doesn't say that there is anything wrong with being wealthy, and often it's seen as being the Lord's blessing. And the Bible also does not teach jealousy. But there is a clear emphasis here against living in opulence and splendor, against selfish spending on self, on that being the priority of your life. And then there are the verses 20 to 21. There is the poor man, and he is actually named Lazarus. It's highly unusual to have a named person in the parable. But at the time, a name in these days signified either who you were, your destiny in life, or what your parents hoped for you. And Lazarus is the Greek version of the Hebrew Eliezer, which means God helps. And that probably was... Lazarus' view on life, and as we read in the parable, it turned out to be the reality. And then our text says he was laid. It's the passive mood. So clearly he was unable to move himself. He was probably a cripple or sick. And the implication, of course, is that he could not provide for himself. 
And our text goes on and says he was laid at a gate. Now the gate, the word for gate here is, is not the gate into some field, but it's an ornate entry to a big house. And he was laid at that entry because he wanted the scraps of food, according to Israel's law for the poor. But you know what? Even the dogs didn't get anything. They came to lick him. It confirms the selfish and the self-centered life of the rich man. And then in verse 22, there is the unavoidable and the irreversible. Death. They both die. And the angels come and bring Lazarus to Abram's bosom, is what the text says. It's a Jewish perspective on going to heaven. Abram's bosom was the place of honor, of care, of closeness. That is where Lazarus is going. But in 23 and 24, we read that the other man is in punishment in hell. And it's obvious that he is aware, he is conscious, and that he is in pain. It's painful as a fire, but it's endless because he is not being consumed. And there are two things that we should note here. The first is, he recognizes Abram. He knew who the patriarch was. So he obviously had received and read the scriptures. He knew immediately what it was and who it was that he saw. And the other thing is that he knew Lazarus personally, because he mentions him by name. He couldn't say that he had never noticed him. And in fact... He appears still to look down on him as a being of lower order, a servant, an errand boy. There were no scraps for Lazarus in life. And now he wants to have him run around and bring a drip of water. And then verse 25, he gets the answer. You received, you took, you cashed in, as it were, your good things. Whatever it was that you considered important, that was good to you, that was your priority in life, you already received it. What you did choose in life, you already got. But life had given Lazarus bad things, not his bad things. No, Lazarus was looking forward to the Lord, hence his name, Eliezer. And now he is with him in heaven. And then verse 26 tells us that there is a chasm, a deep ravine that no one can cross. So their position is final. And the chasm, the text tells us, has been fixed. It's not like it sort of coincidentally happened to be there. No, it was a deliberate act of God. That is the way it is ordained. And it is, the text tells us, with a purpose. In order that. Because with death, God makes it final. The period in which, in which one can turn to God and accept grace, it's finite. At death, it ends. There is a time to change. Always a possibility to change and accept the invitation, but not thereafter. Therefore, praying for the dead is useless because nothing will change anymore. Now, that is an important point in our text, but it is not the main point in our story, because not the conclusion, because the parable continues. And in verse 27 and 28, we read that there is no regret, no guilt, and no repentance from the rich man. 
no different attitude towards Lazarus. Send then the errand boy to my brothers. There is some speculation in the commentaries about his motivation. Was there a hint of unselfishness, or didn't he want to be confronted with the, the brothers blaming him for ending up in that place as well? I think it's just an element in the story to bring home the lesson. And the lesson is twice repeated in our text, just to make sure that we get it in verse 29 and 31. Verse 29, that is the lesson. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. It's an implicit confirmation that the man knew the scriptures also, but he ignored them in the way he treated Lazarus, by implication in the way he treated God. For him, God, revealed in Moses and the prophets, was a low priority. The good living took precedence over worshipping God, church, and fellow believers. But Abram tells us, tells him here, your brothers, they have all they need. They have the invitation to heaven. And then in verse 30, he persists with his question, no, the scriptures are not enough. He wanted a sign. He wanted a miracle. There must be, he says, something more. He wants an upgrade of their invitation. Now, the Lord had dealt earlier with requests for signs in chapters, in chapter 11, verse 16 and 29, and he had declined because there isn't anything more. You know, this Bible, that is the thing. That is the ticket. That is your invitation. And in verse 31, Abram repeats the answer. And in this way, the Lord drives the conclusion home. If one ignores the scripture, there will be no conversion, no repentance, even if somebody arose from the dead. And that is literally true today, isn't it? Because the Lord Jesus did arise, and still many don't care and don't come. But the scripture is your ticket and your invitation, and one cannot count on a special event or hold out for a special experience. It may happen, for example, Paul or the Philippian jailer. But for most in the New Testament, there is the preacher, Paul, Peter, others, and the scripture, like the believers in Berea were studying. But then again, you may say, well, what about responding to this invitation a bit later, when I'm older, wiser, had a good time, feel more up to it, more devout, more given to reflection, when I have a more clear view that I am indeed invited, then I will more fully participate. Well, as we said earlier, you can do that, but the risk is that in the meantime, faith slips through yours. And it will die like a fire that is not kindled. And it is still playing Russian roulette. But you may say, well, what about my calling? How do I know that God has called me? Should there be not a sign or an event or a hint or an experience or some signal from God, an invitation in addition to the Bible, an upgrade over and beyond Moses and the prophets? Well, I think if you read Abram's answer, it is very clear. You have the invitation, and it was in your hand when you came in, the Bible. They are the words that God breathed, inspired scripture. You see, the Lord 
does not leave us in limbo. In a state where we do not know whether we are going to get a real invitation before we die. We must never think the Lord so cruel. Because the Lord has given you the invitation. And his promise is sure. That is what we heard in the assurance of pardon. Because if we repent, he will forgive. And so when we come, we will welcome. In the Bible, you have that certain promise. So then what do we do with our invitation? And then there is in the third place the point we are to come now. That is the message of both parables. The parables themselves have ended here, but their purpose is, of course, not to leave us paralyzed in fear, but to encourage us and to spur us on to make the right choice. And in the Bible, we need to look at the context, always the context. And we find between these two parables in the Bible three others, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And they all emphasize the joy in heaven, the joy in heaven over the people turning to God, over lost sheep, coins, and souls, and sons found again. And the whole gospel is an encouragement, a call to come to God, to rely on the Lord Jesus, to join his flock, and he has issued that invitation to you himself. You can read it in Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, the way people live and spend their time it gives away their priorities in life, even without words. And for these would-be guests and this rich man, there was work and investment, wife and family, fine clothes and feasting, all taking precedence over coming to God's house and doing his will to reading, listening, and following the scriptures. And others showed their commitment to the Lord Jesus by faithfully giving him and his flock priority. And because there are only so many hours in a day, and only so many days in our life, each of us must decide what our priorities are. And choices must be made. Do I go? Do I spend time? Or not? As already Joshua knew, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you will dwell, or whatever your gods and priorities may be today. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And some make that choice deliberately with a lot of noise. It's like in the parable of the lost son. He probably caused quite a stir and upset when he said, give me my money and I'm off. Others may choose by default. And the love is slowly growing cold. It's like a tired swimmer who's been sucked out to sea, slipping under the surface. They always come, they come less, they come sometimes, 
They come a few times. They come no more. But the choice will be made. And this choice for a life with God or without God, for your priorities or his priorities, and the choice will last for eternity. For if we do not want to live with God in this life, why do we think that he wants to live with us, with him in death? And if we do not want to be part of his flock on earth, why do we assume that we will be counted among the sheep in judgment? And if we deliberately leave our seats empty here, why do you think that God should keep one ready in heaven? So do you choose simply, practically to come and to serve him? Because you see, there is the joy of coming to God's house, of listening to his words, of growing in faith, in sharing the good news, in celebrating our salvation. And that was already known in the Old Testament where it says in the psalm we read, 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And the Lord himself encourages us and ensures us and helps us to persevere when he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And he prayed for us. Father, I desire that they also, this is John 17, whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And I have made it known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. You see, that is the future, but that is also today's priority. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Come unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy day be bright. I lived with Jesus, and I found in him my star, my sun, and in that light of life I walk, till traveling days are done. Amen.